I think if there are folks who are already um, a little suspicious of um, either Ashkenazi Jewish folks or Jewish people in general, and unfortunately, there are a lot of people who are like that, I think that will be a piece of the puzzle that they will decide fits rather conveniently into their worldview. And so... Mm -hmm. I, I don't have an estimate for how many people have heard this or know about this or believe this, but it is certainly many more people now than it was five years ago. Welcome to the I'm All Over the Place podcast. I am Dara Star Tucker, and I am introducing my very, very special guest, Mr. Dan McClellan. Dan, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for uh, the invitation and for your time. I appreciate it. Yes, I am so excited. It's been a while since I've been this excited about covering a topic, and maybe it's just the nerd <laughs> in me or the weird um, cadre of interests that I bring to the table. I'm hoping that there are many people who are interested in, in the topic that we're going to talk about today, because I think, unfortunately, it is becoming more and more relevant in the, the world in which we live. And I'm, I'm shocked at, at just how prevalent some of the, the, the uh, theories and misunderstandings and conspiracies around this topic. I'm surprised at how common they have, have become in recent years. Um, but we have a biblical scholar, a Bible scholar here. Please tell me, Dan, about your background, what, you know, what, what's your educational background? Because we're going to talk about religion today. We're going to talk mm -hmm. specifically about uh, the Ashkenazi Jews and, and their history and some, some theories that have been swirling around for quite some time um, about where they come from, what their origins are, but Dan kind of tell us about yourself and, and how you, you know, what your, your title is, how you came into this knowledge, what your educational background is and, and all of that. Uh, yeah, absolutely. So I, I call myself a, a public scholar of the Bible and religion right now. I am an honorary fellow at the Cadbury center for the, um, public awareness of religion, uh, at the university of Birmingham. But uh, I primarily engage in public scholarship uh, on social media, offer online classes and things like that. I do have a uh, Ph.D. in theology and religion from the University of Exeter, where I wrote my doctoral dissertation on cognitive linguistics and the cognitive science of religion uh, and the conceptualization of deity in the Hebrew Bible. Uh, I also have a master's degree in biblical studies from Trinity Western University and a master's degree in Jewish studies from the University of Oxford, where I was at the Oxford Center for Hebrew and Jewish Studies, which was a wonderful experience. Uh, but I, uh, my research focuses on conceptualizations of deity, of scripture, and of religious identity, and primarily through the methodologies of uh, kind of the, the standard methodologies of biblical studies, but also cognitive linguistics and the cognitive science of religion. No, not at all. No. I'm well outside my lane. Engage <laughs> with someone who provides such um, scholarship in this area, because as I said, you know, a lot of people that follow this podcast, they know me from the online space. Dan is a, a TikToker, and as am I, and that's how we, we got connected. Um, but as I've said on my own platform, I stitched one of Dan's videos and I said, it's just, it's, su it's such a relief to be able to engage and have encounters with and listen to the expertise of someone who really, um, is coming to the table with, with real scholarly information versus a lot of the kind of ragtag sort of theories that we hear thrown around I think every, you know, everyone to a certain degree is, is a biblical scholar in their own mind <laughs> in certain, in certain circles that's encouraged. I know in the circles that I grew up in, I grew up evangelical, mm -hmm. um, what would be called evangelical. We certainly did not call ourselves that I was, um, non-denominational charismatic. And then, um, and in my grandmother's church, I, I grew up uh, around the holiness and Pentecostal movement. So kind of, you know, foot one foot in each world, mm -hmm. um, and particularly in that non-denominational, charismatic, word of faith environment, you are encouraged to study the Bible very deeply. And, sure. you know, which leads to a lot of, you know, there there is some scholarship there, but then there's also a lot of, I think, a tendency to, um, which I know is kind of one of your sticking points, this idea of beginning with a dogma 
let's begin with the belief and then let's attempt to kind of insert um, this quote unquote biblical scholarship onto this belief system or this dogma to try and prove um, an already existing belief. Yeah. And so um, this, that's, that's the world that I grew up in. And I think that's why it's, it's so, it's just so cool for me to sit down and be able to dialogue and even to just watch your videos, but to really to be able to sit down and dialogue with you. Cause it's like, well, we, you know, we, we really didn't have a choice when someone presented themselves as being knowledgeable about certain things around scripture, we had no choice, but to just accept what they were saying. Yeah. And, um, you know, we really didn't, we didn't have, I grew up in the age before the internet, we didn't have access to be able to just go and, and deeply research things. So it's, it's really refreshing. I will say, Dan, I saw in, in my comments on that video that I stitched of yours, mm-hmm. someone commented and which I thought was the coolest thing they said, and I'm sure you've heard this kind of thing before, but the woman said, if I had been able to, um, have access to this, this level of uh, knowledge, I might not have left the faith, which I thought was a really interesting comment. You know, I think a lot of people may assume if we're analyzing the Bible too deeply, if we're becoming a little bit too academic with it, and and we are not as focused on the religion or the dogma of it, then that, you know, that pulls people away from the faith. I am, yeah. So I am uh, an adult convert to the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, also known as the Mormon Church. I went and I served a two-year mission, um, proselytizing mission in Uruguay, where I learned Castellano, which is a which is a type of Spanish that uh, gets me in trouble when I try to uh, talk with a lot of folks around here. But uh, whenever I hear the Pope talk, it brings me back to uh, to Uruguay. But uh, I get comments like that frequently. Um, as well as from folks who are in that position where they're they're doubting, and I, I hear comments that oh that this makes it easier for me to um, to remain in the faith, and then other folks who said this makes me glad that I'm no longer in the faith, or this makes me glad that I'm still in the faith. I I get uh, both detractors and supporters across the entire spectrum, which I think is is so fascinating, but at the same time fits with what I think the data indicate about religiosity and religious belief is that it it can't really be um, distilled down to just truth claims. That's a very Protestant approach to what religion is, but uh, research indicates it has a lot more to do with just claims about uh, absolute truth or the origins of the universe or the existence of a deity. There's so much more going on, and for a lot of people, seeing critical scholarship, understanding the Bible from a historical critical point of view makes them comfortable with um, sitting in those other dimensions, those other spaces that make religion fulfilling and meaningful for them. Um, and so it's it's not a huge surprise, but it is always, it's, uh, it, well, I guess, I guess that's a lie. It's, I, it shouldn't be a surprise, but it still um, surprises me uh, how many different perspectives uh, I see from people commenting uh, on on my content and, and sending me messages because they come from the entire spectrum of belief and non-belief, and I think it just shows how complex, how multifaceted, multidimensional belief can be, and um, and I'm just, I'm very grateful that I'm able to offer something that uh, people find useful across that spectrum, and I I look forward to more and more scholars out there being able to do that, because it certainly, I certainly appreciate the experts that I've found on TikTok in other fields, in, in medicine, and, um, and in history, and other fields where I don't have the expertise that they do, and one of the reasons I got on TikTok and on social media in general is because I I saw experts in other fields, but didn't really see anybody who was an expert specifically in the Bible or in religion. And so hopefully I am am filling a, a gap uh, in the social media content, and hopefully there will be more joining me in the future. Yeah, I you very much are. And um, <laughs> it's so funny you know, I, yeah, people see what I think your point is that people kind of, they, they get from it what they need, you know, their people are drawn to what you do for various reasons. But I think, you know, I, I commented recently when marking um, a milestone that I had hit on uh, TikTok and I was on Facebook and, you know, just kind of doing my little celebration thing. And I'm like, the the best thing about 
this space, the, the, this online space, TikTok specifically, is being able to encounter and, and interact with, I have been able to connect with so many professionals and so many people who have such a deep well of knowledge about their specific area of emphasis. You know, yeah. I, I mean, met, like you said, medical professionals are there and, you know, epidemiologists and there are historians there and there are people who are talking about culture and race and religion and, and science and technology and data analysts. And you could, you, you it, pretty much anything that you want to learn about, you can find. Yeah. On TikTok. And I think people think of it, if they haven't been on it, they think of it as just some silly app that's, you know, for kids and they're doing dances, which it is. But I think, you know, us kind of uh, fogies have crashed the space as well. <laughs> yeah. Finding, you know, finding a, a play. It's, it's, it's unlike anything, in my opinion, it's unlike anything that has ever existed before it. Yeah. Just it's kind of quick, you know, sometimes even one minute videos that can just help to lock you into something that maybe you didn't understand fully before. And it's like, wow, I feel enriched. I feel like I've gotten <laughs> something. There's a nugget of something that I understand now that I didn't understand before. Yeah. I, I think there are more and more people are discovering that you can do so much on, on TikTok with creators yeah. who do all kinds of different stuff from, from uh, cooking recipes. You have people critiquing the way other people cook. We have people uh, <laughs> looking at, um, older recipes and trying to see how people were, were eating a hundred years ago. Wow. Um, and I, I frequently have people tell me I need to start a, a separate TikTok account where I do scholarship of comic books because oh, wow. I have a, um, I, you know, wear comic book t-shirts a lot. I, I love comics, but I know there are experts in comic books out there and that I, that would, I would not be able to do any justice whatsoever to that. And so I, mm -hmm. I let people know that is not my lane. <laughs> there are other people who are, filling that lane phenomenally and I'm going to leave it to them. So yeah, people will try to push you into, into any and everything. Well, you know, you need to be talking about this. And I'm just like, no, there are plenty of people talking about that. That's I don't feel any obligation whatsoever to, yeah. to jump outside of my lane, which is yeah. why um, I reached out to you. One of the things I really love about your channel too, is that, um, you know, there, there is the culture on TikTok and outside of TikTok, you know, on pretty much any platform, especially if it's video based, um, to kind of slam dunk on people, you know, or play this kind of gotcha game where, you know, you, you present your side of the story and here's my hot take. And, you know, we're, we're doing the death, you know, what is it called a cage match? And, you know, it, and it can be very entertaining in certain respects, especially if you have some sort of emotional investment, mm -hmm. um, in, in the, in the fight, if you have a dog in the fight, you kind of want to see your dog win. And I, I can't say that I have not invested in that kind of thing to some degree, yeah. in other respects but i think when it comes to religion when it comes to religious discourse um it, it that can be a very um i don't want to say dangerous but it can be a very dangerous game to play and it can be yeah. those can be very dicey waters to enter into because there there are very few things that people are more passionate or sensitive about than their religious beliefs and doctrines and so what I what I like to see with your channel, I, I love how you insert just just the slightest bit of snark. It brings my heart. Joy. <laughs> but it's always a respectful conversation. I think your ultimate goal is to educate. Um, and I feel like we sh we share that aim, the, the basis and just the fundamental, you know, reason for your, the existence of what you do is education. It's yeah. to bring knowledge. It's to bring enlightenment. It's to bring understanding. And it's not to elevate you know yourself as some sort of uh authority on anything necessarily but like hey here's my here's the knowledge that i bring to the table and this is why this theory is is errant and it your videos always start out with just this little you know you'll you'll play just a splice of of some something that someone said and then you come back with this all right, let's hear it. Or all right, let's see it. I can't remember which one it is. Yeah. All right, let's see it. <laughs> let's see it. Yeah. And then, you know, we're all poised and ready. We're like, Dan, I've got to do his thing. Dan, come on, bring clarification, bring illumination, bring understanding. And there are, you know, it it excites me because what I do is is so similar to that in that um, there are a lot of extremists that mm -hmm. interact with our content or that we interact with in the course of what we do. And I have to continually remind myself that I am not here to necessarily appeal to or convert 
extremists because a lot of them are very much dug in and they're locked in, you know, either side. But I'm here for the people in the middle who really want, who are seeking understanding and who are seeking some, uh, you know, a, a foundation, kind of a ground level. Like, hey, is there truth here? Is there a truth to be found? Because if there is, I want to know what that is, you know, to the best of my ability. And so um, I just, I appreciate um, your commitment to truth and the ability that you have, no matter how, um, you know, some of these people are are, are really mean-spirited and not very kind. <laughs> and they are, uh, frankly, in my words and not yours, but many of them are zealots. Many of the people that, whose videos you have to respond to and interact with, they're, they're, they're not very nice, but somehow you manage to keep a very respectful tone. So I, I really deeply appreciate that about you, Dan. Well, thank you. Thank you for the very kind words. And I appreciate them and, and the, the humbling words. I do my best. I'm, I'm not perfect at it, but, um, uh, but yeah, I found that my message can, can get through a lot better if the more contrast is drawn between the demeanor of mm. the person I'm, I'm responding to and myself. Mm-hmm. Um, it is very tempting sometimes to yell into the, the camera, but um uh, but I think the message will get caught up in all kinds of different um, thing, problems if that's what I'm doing. But the fact that, you know, I've got 20 years experience arguing with people on the Internet about religion. So there's not much that I haven't heard out there. There aren't many, um, uh, you know, nobody can yell loud enough that I have not had not been able to deal calmly with uh, with them before. And so and also. If it takes me a dozen takes to do something, I get sick and tired of looking upset about it. So <laughs> at that point, I'd just be acting anyway. So, right. um, yeah, I and I've been when I first started off, I didn't really I don't like looking at myself on a camera. Um, I was no, I was not comfortable with filming myself. Uh, and so. I was just doing it kind of deadpan as kind of a default. If I try to be too performative about this um you know the message is going to get lost and then that turned into kind of a persona that people started commenting on and appreciating and so i kind of uh kind of fell backwards into well this is my persona on uh on social media now um and so i've had to i've tried to stick with it because i do think it actually serves the message uh better for me to be consistent to be dispassionate to be mm-hmm. even toned even in the face of folks who are personally attacking me mm-hmm. um and so um yeah it's hope i'd like to see more of that out there i think you are a wonderful example of that as well i've appreciated sure. how you've been able to tackle very controversial ideas particularly as they uh, relate to race and society uh and history and uh present it in a very even tone without uh, having to um, attack the person or without uh, having to degrade the other side uh, of any given conflict. So I've, I've appreciated that uh, from, from your content as well. So thank you. I appreciate that. I mean, there's a, there's a, you know, there's a fine line to be drawn. Um, I know this is just kind of a love fest, but I, just, <laughs> okay. There's a fine line. You can edit it down to uh, <laughs> later on. There's a, you you know, it's, you're you're drawing a very fine line i think when you when you do this kind of thing online between like as you said being very dispassionate and kind of relaying the facts and making sure that people understand like you're not here to push in a particular agenda you are here to provide illumination and to provide understanding around a topic while at the same time and i've come under criticism for this myself while at the same time not mincing words, which is another thing that I appreciate about you. Um, you don't equivocate and you don't attempt to play to both sides. It's simply like, here are the facts. Here is the information. And I, I'm not really going to try to make or placate anyone or make anyone feel better about the fact that they are, you know, here on this this other side of of the truth. Uh, I'm not coming after you. I'm not attacking you personally necessarily, but I'm going to state very clearly, very succinctly that is, you know, the video that I stitched of yours, I, the, the clip that I took was <laughs> literally saying that is not true whatsoever. There is absolutely yeah, yeah. no stitch of truth to that. <laughs> we need that though. We, we really, really need that in this age of like quick sound bites and it can be very easy to obscure the truth when you just, 
you know, you're willing to just wear someone out by yakking their head off about something. Um, we, we need directness and straightforwardness. So that's that I deeply appreciate that as, as well. It's like, if it's, if it's inaccurate and if it's wrong, just, just say so it's okay to just say that outright. And I, I mean, that, that, that candor is so important. I mean, I, I, I appreciate it. That's just, well, thank you. Me. And, <laughs> and I, and I think we, we would, the discourse would be much improved if we could learn to distinguish the rhetoric from the person. And I try to address the rhetoric and I don't mince words with the rhetoric because rhetoric can be phenomenally harmful. Mm-hmm. Even if the person who is sharing it doesn't understand exactly the harm that it can, uh, it can cause. And I think that is, that is likely true of, uh, of what we're going to talk about today yes, as well, that absolutely. a lot of people spread this rhetoric without realizing uh, what lies underneath and what the rhetorical goals of some of the architects of this rhetoric are. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Hi, I'm Dr. Miranda Melcher, host of the Just Access podcast. We bring you amazing interviews from the world of human rights and access to justice, from Dunja Miatovic, Council of Europe Commissioner for Human Rights, to Liz Evenson, International Justice Director at Human Rights Watch. Whether you're a law student or legal professional, human rights activist, or just want to stay up to date on what's happening with the world, the Just Access podcast is your go-to for inspirational stories and fascinating discussions about the state of human rights today. Search for Just Access on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Yeah, I was talking with someone today about this specific topic, and we're going to talk about, as I said, the uh, Ashkenazi uh, Jews and some theories around their history and their origin and um, theories about them uh, basically not not being, quote unquote, real Jews. And I was talking with someone about this and just how excited I was to have this conversation. And they said, well, you know, they weren't necessarily saying let the people have their fun, but they were essentially saying, let the people have their fun. Like why Hmm. disturb this? Why disturb them? They're not bothering anyone. Hmm. Um, You know, and there, there are some different complexities to this conversation um, that can be a little bit difficult to, to get into and can be extremely um, touchy and very sensitive. And so what, when you say that theories like this um, and I'll kind of let you lay out what the theory is that we're addressing when you say that those theories can do harm, how how exactly can they do harm? Why dispel the myths? Why do any sort of um, you know myth myth busting around it? And and this is one of the things that if I ever get accused of being dogmatic, it's it's about this. But I've always been clear that I prioritize the data over the dogma. Um, however, all other things being equal, I'm going to give the benefit of the doubt to the less powerful, the less privileged group, because when we uh, when we try to level everything off and treat the system as if everyone is on the same playing field, that benefits the privileged and the powerful over the marginalized, the minoritized mm-hmm. and the oppressed that just perpetuates their uh, perpetuates the systemic power asymmetries that cause that marginalization, that oppression. And so I'm going to give them the benefit of the doubt. And and what we're talking about today is an issue where this does contribute to anti-Semitism and the perpetuation of a lot of myths, as well as a lot of attempts to structure power over and against the interests of some of those uh, marginalized groups. And unfortunately, there are so many different interests involved in this issue that in in many ways it's pitting oppressed group against oppressed group um and marginalized group against marginalized group and and i think that uh the the privileged and the powerful are going to be served by the perpetuation of these myths and by um people focusing on um, pitting these groups against each other uh, so that the the most powerful and the most privileged continue to remain in their position. And I think more clarity about what's going on here, about what interests are in play, uh, will serve everyone's interests. And, and hopefully we can achieve a little more um, equity across the board, mm-hmm. um, if that's if that's possible. 
Yeah, I think it is possible. Um, so can you can you just kind of lay out this theory for us? This theory, yeah. um, this I, I believe it's called the Khazar theory. So yeah. can, can you kind of just address like what what is this? I mean, I've, I've I know the ways in which I've encountered it, and you know it's hit very close to home for me. Mm-hmm. But um, can you just kind of tell us what the theory is and where it came from? So this is a, a theory about uh, the origins of one of the two main. Um, branches of European Jewish communities. We have the Sephardim or the the Sephardic Judaism, uh, which between the Babylonian exile and the expulsion from uh, Jerusalem by the Romans and um, in some other periods in between, you had people leaving uh, ancient Southwest Asia, the area we now know as as the Middle East. Uh, The Sephardim uh, traveled to the Iberian Peninsula around Spain and have migrated around since then. The other group are known as the Ashkenazi, and they are traditionally located uh, in Western Europe. Uh, there is a, there's a, been a lot of mystery around where precisely they came from. Uh, and there was, and there's been a lot of anti-Semitism that has, um, that has circulated as well. And in 1976, we had this um, Hungarian Jewish scholar named Arthur Kessler, who who wrote a book called The 13th Tribe. And the intent was to undercut some of the uh, anti-Semitism in this time period by suggesting that Ashkenazi Jewish people were not Semitic people to begin with. The idea being these people are all anti-Semitic. Well, maybe if we identify Ashkenazi Jewish folks as not Semitic, that will kind of act as a bit of a buffer. Um, And so what he came up with was this theory of the origins of Ashkenazi Jewish people in the conversion of um, an empire known as the the Khazars that occupied uh, the region uh, around the Caucasus Mountains in between uh, the Black and the Caspian Sea. Uh, They were there between around the 8th to the 10th centuries CE. And in the 11th and 12th centuries CE, we have some uh, accounts uh, stating that there was a significant conversion to Judaism among uh, the leaders of the um, Khazar Empire. And so this theory that, uh, that Kessler produced was that Ashkenazi Jewish folks originate in these converts to Judaism within the um, Khazarian or the Khazar empire, which would mean that the Ashkenazi Jewish communities do not go all the way back to these populations that fled uh, the land uh, of Israel, the Middle East, Syria, Palestine, ancient Southwest Asia between the sixth century BCE and the, and the opening centuries of the common era but originate in these converts, which means they would have no genetic link to those uh, early uh, Jewish communities that were uh, that were leaving from the land of Israel. And this is a it's a problematic attempt to kind of shield Ashkenazi Jewish folks from anti-Semitism because it then led to a more, I would say, um, severe kind of anti-Semitic deployment of that theory in saying, aha, Ashkenazi Jewish folks have no genetic ethnic link to the folks who occupied the land of Israel anciently. Therefore, the folks who are coming back into Israel uh, from Ashkenazi communities are invading a land that is not theirs. And it contributes to this idea that they're not, they don't have, um, proper rights to that land. They are not true Jewish people. They're not real Jewish people. Uh, and this has also contributed to groups today. And we've seen this in some headlines in the last couple of years uh, where they are linked with the statement in, in the book of Revelation in the New Testament, Revelation 2.9, where it talks about people who say they are Jews and are not, but are of the synagogue of Satan. And so this not only becomes a conspiracy theory that denies uh, Jewish ethnicity to Ashkenazi Jewish communities, but also vilifies them uh, for those who, um, who consider the New Testament to be authoritative as 
a synagogue of Satan. Uh, and this also means that if they're not the real Jewish people, who are the real Jewish people? And there are groups that have stepped up to assert uh, their identity as the real Jewish people in place of Ashkenazi Jewish people. So there are a bunch of different uh, interests that are uh, in play in this conspiracy theory, but it's not really based on any good data and it's causing an awful lot of harm uh, to Jewish communities today. Mm -hmm. So why can you tell me why, if it's, if it really is, um, it's a, it's a debunked theory um, as in terms of scholarly sources, why, mm -hmm. why has it had such, such legs, even within the, the, the uh, academic community. I mean, the, you know, the person who put forth this theory, the Kessler, I think he said in 76, I mean, he wasn't just some, some guy off the street. This is someone who ostensibly has some uh, accreditation um, around these subjects. <laughs> why, why is it that there is, is has been such a, a buy-in at, at a high level? And I'm not just talking about, um, you know, researchers on YouTube, but, you know, people who really should know better well, it, it's because there are, it serves the interests of a lot of dogmatic positions. Because after, after Kessler, there was another scholar named Shlomo Sand, who published a book called The Invention of the Jewish People. And um, this was a, an avowed uh, post-Zionist uh, who is trying to undermine um, a Zionist ideology. And so this is an attractive theory to deny that uh, the folks who are promoting Zionism, which is, is frequently Ashkenazi Jewish folks, uh, are actually, they're believing in a lie, that they don't have any claim to this land. And so for post-Zionist Jewish folks, it serves that rhetorical goal of, of under, undermining the Zionist project. Uh, there are also Palestinians who have been under the boot of the Israeli state uh, since uh, it was formed in the middle of the uh, 20th century, who uh, are suffering under what many scholars refer to as an apartheid state, who would be served by the notion that uh, these are invaders who don't have any connection to and therefore don't have any right to this land. Uh, mm -hmm. So it serves those interests as well. Uh, and there are other folks who, who want to uh, assert their own connections with uh, ancient Judaism, who would need them to get out of the way in order for um, for that to work, uh, and so it's a lot of folks are are seeking to advance the interests of their own social identities, whether they are um, anti-Zionist or they are uh, Palestinian or they are a member of the um, Hebrew Israelite groups, who who are some of the more recent um, promoters of this theory and. You know, there's nothing wrong with these social identities. These are people trying to advocate for their own identity, for their own groups. And this is an attractive way to do it uh, if one doesn't understand all of the, uh, the history, the linguistics, the science behind it. Uh, and so it becomes a, a way for people to uh, seek to structure power in favor of their own identity politics. Um, and unfortunately, it causes a lot of conflict in the academic uh, and the broader social world. Mm -hmm. So can you tell, can you just kind of tell us in, in simplified terms, I guess, why this theory is problematic? I mean, what 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 are the basic issues? What are the basic problems with yeah. this theory? How do we know that this this is this is really a um, a false theory? Well, one of the things it's trying to respond to is the problem of how around a thousand years ago, the uh, between a thousand years ago and now, the population of Jewish communities in Eastern Europe exploded. Where did they come from? And there are ways to account for this um, with just in internal population dynamics. It does not require uh, we find these mass migrations from elsewhere. But um, the problem with trying to solve this by looking at mass migrations is we just don't have a ton of data. We don't have much information. Now, we have these traditions. We have this, I, this tradition of um, the Khazar communities um, converting to Judaism. And so that's a datum that a lot of people think, all right, let's put that on the board 
as something that can contribute to our understanding of how these population, um, how this population exploded, where Ashkenazi Jewish folks came from. And then now we have uh, a lot of genetic data uh, going on. Uh, we got a lot of research in genetics that hopefully can help us answer a lot of these questions. And so mm -hmm. some of the folks who are promoting this hypothesis today are geneticists. The problem is we don't have any descendants of the Khazar communities. And so we have to use other populations as proxies for this. So for instance, Armenians and Georgians and things like that. Uh, and so one of the geneticists who is promoting this theory um, has been for the last uh, decade plus uses those populations as a proxy for the Khazars and then is looking at DNA data from a very small number of uh, Ashkenazi Jewish folks trying to identify links between the two. But there have been uh, more thorough uh, analyses of the genetics that indicate there's nothing, there's no significant link between Ashkenazi Jewish populations in general and any of the genetic markers from the regions in and around the Caucasus. And so um, from a genetic point of view, the data is, is just not there. Mm -hmm. um, but if we look at some of the assumptions that were made in the early periods of the, the rise of, of this genetic research, there are some scholars who make some claims that if you ignore the more recent scholarship that has overturned those claims, you might think, yeah, the Georgians and the Armenians uh, are proto-Khazars, and so we can we can use that as a as a proxy. There's also a linguistic argument that's going on. Uh, the uh, Yiddish language is closely connected with Ashkenazi communities, and so there are some folks trying to make the argument that the languages spoken in and around the Caucasus around a thousand years ago are closely linked to Yiddish, and therefore that may be where. Yiddish came from. Um, more recent linguistic analysis has shown that there's just nothing to those theories. And so uh, there are there are some other um, kind of more dogmatic approaches to this. For instance, some folks will point to the Bible as evidence that uh, the Ashkenazi Jewish communities are not uh, from uh, the Semitic genetic stock. For instance, in Genesis 10, we have what's known as the Table of Nations, and it talks about the different nations that have descended from um, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, the sons of Noah. And Japheth has uh, goes from, I think, Japheth to Gomer, and there's a, a son named Ashkenaz. And some folks suggest, aha, that is the ethnic origin of the Ashkenazi Jewish people. And Japheth is not Shem. Therefore, the Ashkenazi people are not Semitic. They are something else. Um, and that is also baseless because one, the Table of Nations is, uh, is not an accurate uh, identifier of the ethnic roots of the different nations of the world. It's an etiology from the middle of the first millennium BCE that is just coming up with a way to uh, group all of the known peoples in the world underneath this tradition of Noah, who had Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and they populated the whole earth after the flood. Um, but additionally, the name Ashkenazi was applied to the Jewish communities that were settling around the Rhine, around uh, northern France and Germany around a thousand years ago, because in the rabbinic period, that name Ashkenaz became associated with the Scythian peoples, uh, then became uh, more broadly associated with the Slavic peoples. And then around a thousand years ago, the use of that name to designate regions and peoples moved over into Western Europe. And so as Jewish communities were growing in that area, they became referred to as Ashkenazi Jewish people. So on biblical and linguistic, on uh, genetic grounds, the argument doesn't really hold water. The overwhelming consensus is that there may be some uh, Khazars who, who converted to Judaism and they very well could have made their way into uh, the, the roots of um, some Ashkenazi communities, but it's not 
the majority of their origins. It's certainly not um, responsible for the entirety of the genetic stock of uh, Ashkenazi peoples. And so the theory doesn't um, is, is widely rejected by scholars today. Hmm. So how, how hard, I mean, I know it's, it probably is a very difficult thing to measure um, the harm that a theory like this has done. I mean, how would you assess that just from your, your own point of view? What, what, what is the harm? How do you assess the harm that, that is done by this theory? Well, I, I think a lot of the harm is, is more social than anything else. It contributes to um, a lot of hard feelings about Ashkenazi Jewish people among folks who think that this theory has something to it. They think that Ashkenazi Jewish folks are, um, are false Jewish people, that they are um, not real Jewish people. There can be, uh, there's a lot of hatred and a lot of vituperative pejorative rhetoric being shared on social media about uh, Jewish people just in general. And, and this is just one more way that that can be uh, amplified, particularly in uh, when it gets shared publicly. Uh, mm -hmm. Some uh, people like Kanye and some other mm -hmm. folks recently have been sharing this theory. Uh, and these are, are very powerful people. Uh, who have a lot of access to uh, media and can spread these theories. And so people who may not have felt um, negatively towards Ashkenazi Jewish groups before the last couple of years may now have, have heard this and thought, oh, that makes sense. Okay, I'm going to think this way about Ashkenazi Jewish folks in the future. Uh, it could it is going to harm relations between... Um, the Palestinians and Israelis. Uh, I mean, those those relations have always been strained, mm -hmm. um, but that's just going to contribute to uh, to further strain on their part. And to the degree that some of the more conservatively minded um, politicians in the U.S. adopt that uh, as as a part of uh, kind of a conservative Christian contingent in the government, I think that could also impact. Uh, the way we in, um, engage in, in public discourse here and um, and maybe even legislation at some point. I hope it does. It seems unlikely to me that it'll get that far, but that's that's certainly a possibility if people become further entrenched in defending this theory, which is something that frequently happens. If someone comes up with a theory and they get a lot of pushback, if that theory is important to their own social identities, rather than give it up, rather than think critically about it, what they will do is, is just dig in further and push back harder against it. Uh, and then people become further embedded in, in their mm -hmm. dogmas and it becomes harder and harder to overcome. So mm -hmm. I, I think there are a lot of different ways that this uh, is causing harm and will continue to cause harm. Mm. How widespread do you think the, the theory is? I mean, how, how often have you encountered it, it in the work that you do? Um. I don't encounter it a ton. It's largely kind of a a fringe feature of research into Jewish origins. And it's really since uh, I think Kyrie Irving and, and mm -hmm. Kanye uh, began to really publicize this and defend it based on um, a movie, uh, I think, that was uh, that came out uh, shortly before um, it started being uh, discussed publicly. Very few people knew about it before then. Um, it was something that really just linguists and, and some geneticists and some scholars of Jewish history uh, have been aware of. And now I think people have heard kind of the rough outlines of it. Mm -hmm. And I think if there are folks who are already um, a little suspicious of um, either Ashkenazi Jewish folks or Jewish people in general, and unfortunately, there are a lot of people who are like that. I think that will be a piece of the puzzle that they will decide fits rather conveniently into their worldview. And so mm -hmm. I, I don't have an estimate for how many people have heard this or know about this or believe this, but it is certainly many more people now than it was five years ago. Yeah. Yeah. I, I would think, I mean, you, you mentioned the genetic element of it, and I would think that that would kind of end the conversation it doesn't end the conversation around a whole lot of other 
origin theories, at least, you know, speaking from my point of view, dealing with, you know, issues of race and culture, the way I do, I get a lot of pushback on certain things that I say, even, even stating that there was, that, that there wasn't a transatlantic slave trade and that the majority of black people in the United States come from sub-Saharan Africa and were brought over through the transatlantic slave trade. You would think that that would be just a generally understood and accepted thing, especially when we can go back and look at, you know, our, our genetic data. Um, but it doesn't seem to shut the conversation down. Why has, why have, um, re, why has research into genetics and, and that technology developing as it has, why has that not shut this theory down? Well, I think um, something that I've, I've begun to say recently on my, my channel is that we need people to be able to think critically and Google competently. <laughs> and, um, and the internet has made so much information available mm -hmm. to so many people at the push of a button. Unfortunately, it does not also make available training on how to, yes. how to think critically or, yes. or Google competently. And so people think <clears throat> they Google something and they find a, a thousand websites yeah. that say something. Mm -hmm. And if they don't know how to interrogate the website, what kind of website is this? Is this academic? Is this social? Is this just a blog? Um, they may not be able to get underneath those claims and find out what data, if any, are actually supporting these claims. And I've, and I've done some videos on my channel showing that you can find very, very widespread claims on websites all over the world that are just flatly demonstrably false. Hmm. Not only are they not supported by any data, the data unilaterally falsify the claims. Mm -hmm. But someone who's not used to doing academic research is not going to know that. Um, mm -hmm. And so if someone is out there on the internet looking for confirmation of a dogma of theirs, they're going to find it. Yeah. And, and if they're not disciplined enough to think critically and say, hmm, this website is making this claim, but where is this claim coming from? What data are, are supporting or are falsifying this claim? They're not going to look any further than that. That's this problem of confirmation bias. We are intuitively kind of... Um, our default setting is to find information that makes us feel better about ourselves and our social mm -hmm. identities. And if we find that information, we're just going to enjoy that little, uh, that little high, and then we're going to move on. Mm -hmm. We're not going to question it. Mm -hmm. And so because this, a theory like this serves so many geopolitical, ethnic, and other interests, it's going to be attractive to people all around the world if they are not... Uh, able to think critically about them. And so, um, yeah, it's, it's an enormous problem. The internet, which, which offers so much to us, is also one of the main purveyors of, of uh, problems like this, mm -hmm. uh, which is why I think it's so important to get the information out there so that people... There's, there's research that shows that we can share facts all day long with people, and that's not going to convince them. Mm -hmm. That the thing um, and, you know, issues with uh, with COVID, I think, have, mm -hmm. have only punctuated that fact that you can spew data all day long. It's not going to change somebody's mind. People are going to change their mind when they have personal relationships with people who can get them to let down their defenses or if they have personal experiences that are strong enough to get them to let down their defenses. Because mm -hmm. those intuitive defenses, I need to feel good about myself. I need to feel good about my social identities. So I'm, I'm going to have these subconscious walls around my perception that are going to keep anything that challenges the goodness of my social identities out. Personal experiences, personal relationships are what are needed to get past those walls so that people can acknowledge and consider uh, other sides of the story. Mm. Well, I this it's a passion of mine to this sort of debunking and myth busting kind of thing. I mean, in in a, um, in a in an accurate way and in an academic way, in the way that you do it is is it's been a passion of mine for a long time. I am not an academic, and I am not an expert in anything. But what I do have a passion for is critical thought, is you know, real analysis, um, because as you said, there there's so much information that's available to us, which kind of makes you know, it, 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 it kind of makes it more difficult to get to accurate information because you can find backing to support whatever it is that you want to believe these days. This is the, 
the danger in the age in which we live. I mean, you, YouTube is a, it's, it's just, it's completely shark infested waters. And I've noticed, I mean, I can, I can Google something as innocuous of what I thought was as innocuous as Oprah yesterday. I was looking for a little bit of, it was Sunday. I was like, yeah, let me find a little bit of inspiration. She does these inspirational kind of, you know, talks and things. Mm-hmm. And the, the crazy stuff that came up under Oprah's name, just to put that in, in YouTube, just put her name in YouTube. And the majority of the first results that came up, the first 10 results that came up were just utter trash, utter conspiratorial nonsense. And it's just a very sad and a heartbreaking thing to me to feel that so many people are being kind of carried off of this, you know, precipice. I don't know. Um, I've done videos on confirmation bias and on um, argument and rhetoric and debate and, you know, logical fallacies and things like this, but there has to be a desire, I guess, on the part of of a person um, to to rightly divide, as the Bible itself says, to rightly divide the word of truth and to understand um, truth from from fiction versus um, being affirmed in what we already, you know, what what we want to to feel or understand about ourselves. Um, So when it comes to, uh, and I'll specifically um, make a statement with regard to the black community, when it comes to certain members of the black community latching on to theories like this, I would say that a lack of affirmation of our own identity can, can lead to a, a propensity to fall prey to, to theories like this and false, false histories. Cause this isn't the only one by, by far, by a long shot. Um, and I, I plan to have conversations about this kind of thing um, even more so in the future. Um, but, I, I think the the work that you're doing around this is is so important. But is there a way, I guess, just as me as being someone who is engaged in in a type of uh, debunking and myth busting and educating around different kinds of topics, is there a way to create um, the desire, I guess I would say, to create or to um, cultivate the desire in people to seek out truth? Um, and you know, what, what does that work look like for, for us? I know you mentioned personal relationships and, you know, that's, that's probably the the best that we could hope for is that people would develop relationships with people who could have conversations with them. But is there a way that we can approach the work that we do in a way that cultivates that desire for truth? I know that's a very kind of convoluted and deep question. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's the, that's the perennial question. It's what I ask myself every day is, is how, you know, Beyond just trying to uh, create successful social media content, how can I make it so it's more effective so that it is more efficiently and effectively combating the spread of misinformation? And I don't uh, I don't have a good answer for that, um, apart from just inspiring more and more people to get involved so that the information spreads further and so that the odds that someone hearing the misinformation is going to know someone who is engaged in this in this combating of it is higher Uh, i think that is going to do um some of the most good and then i think just people speaking up when they hear it i think too many times in the interest of our personal relationships we'll let stuff slide um and uh, sometimes that leads to people assuming that what they're saying is more acceptable than it really is, mm-hmm. uh, which, which, you know, it's asking people to incur social costs mm-hmm. to, to tell them you need to challenge this. Uh, but I, I think the, those costs are pale in comparison to the costs of allowing this kind of stuff to continue to spread. So I, if, if the internet inspires more and more people to, become interested in their own past, uh, in the histories of the people around them, in what's going on with the, the struggles that they see in front of them. Uh, if it does that, then I think we're moving the needle uh, to some degree. And I've been very fortunate to get feedback from people who have said that I've inspired them to go and study religion or study mm-hmm. the Bible uh, in university or something like that. I, I am touched by that. I am humbled by that. Because it means we have more and more people who are going to be able to spread uh, data uh, mm-hmm. that can combat the dogma. But 
yeah, changing uh, the hearts of others. That's uh, that's something I, I don't know that we found a, a great answer uh, regarding yeah. how how to do that yet. Yeah, I, I you know, as I said before, I try and continually remind myself that it's not my job to convert um, extremists. It's not my job necessarily to engage with with zealots or with people who are very dug in with a particular uh, point of view or dogma, my job is to reach those people in the middle because they want truth and they want understanding um, yeah. around topics that are very heady and, and very difficult topics like this, um, but can also be very, very damaging. Um, you know, I did a, a video, uh, a couple of videos where I kind of touched on, um, there have been several videos where I have touched on because I, I, I love the Jewish people and I've always had kind of a, a deep connection or spiritual kind of um, uh, admiration and love for the Jewish people. And so I have been accused of anti-Semitism myself for one reason or another, uh, for, uh, several videos that I've, I've done around, um, Jews and Jewishness. Um, but one of the videos I did was called whatever happened to relations between the black and Jewish communities. And I got a whole lot of pushback on both ends, the extreme of, of both ends of that conversation from very uh, right-leaning, um, Jewish people, and from black folks who were very much invested in this this theory of uh, the Hebrew Israelites and you know this Khazar theory and all of that, so it caused me to when that happened and there were so many people in the middle. I have to remind myself, eighty percent of the folks in the middle were appreciative of that video, and you know my following actually increased from it and got connected to some really interesting people. Um, but it also caused me to back away. It, it also caused me to say, hey, you know, this is this is a really interesting topic. And maybe I want to get into this and research this in the minute that groundswell hit. I mean, mm -hmm. I, I just found out a couple of days ago that Ben Shapiro did a response video to to me at that time, <laughs> back in November 2022. Oh, wow. Yeah. And I didn't know it. I just found it. I was looking for something, you know, because of this conversation that we're having. And I just stumbled upon it. I was like, oh, gosh. I cannot believe it. Um, but you know, engaging with the extremists is difficult. And when you say, Hey, when you're in a personal conversation with someone pushing back on that is important and is necessary because people need to understand in the moment that these are not just, um, accepted, um, theories that there is, there is, you know, legitimate opposition to these theories. And so what I, what I would like for you to do if possible is just to give us a few because you you did a, a very good job kind of you know laying out and explaining the the, the problematic nature of this so-called Khazar theory but if you can just give us you know maybe three good bullet points to take away when we encounter um this theory not that we're going to be having deep scholarly debates with with anyone around it necessarily because mm -hmm. this is not you know our line of work but when we encounter the theory, what are maybe the main three to five points that we can hit and just have to take away from from this conversation when we when we hear this theory um, proposed? I, I think the the main thing to be aware of is that this theory has been proliferated. It has become popular because it is a way to delegitimize the Ashkenazi Jewish claim to Jewish ethnicity and roots in the land of Israel. That's what that's the main reason that people are spreading this theory is because it delegitimizes those claims and that is and that is phenomenally harmful. Uh, I would suggest that the overwhelming majority of geneticists agree that there is no support for the notion that the Ashkenazi Jewish people descend from Khazar converts to Judaism. That's not supported by the genetics, and it's not supported by the overwhelming majority of linguists who look at the origins of uh, the Yiddish language. And so the data, there are just no data there that give this enough support to take it seriously. It is a fringe theory, again, that is popular only because it serves to delegitimize the claim of Ashkenazi Jewish communities to Jewish ethnicity and uh, roots in the land of Israel. Um, and yeah, hopefully that's, uh, that's enough for, for most folks. People are going to, there are a small handful of scholars who are still trying to publish responses to the consensus saying, yeah, but, yeah, but what about, uh, and there are going to be responses to that small little minority of scholars saying, no, that doesn't work because of, this, that, and the other. The 
the theory is not going to uh, it's not going to survive scholarly scrutiny. It's mm -hmm. only going to su survive if there are people who want to spread it in their efforts to structure power and values uh, in favor of their own identity politics, whatever their origins may be. Mm -hmm. Well, I certainly appreciate the illumination that you've you've brought around it. I think for most people, those kind of bulleted points are pretty much all that they can or want to absorb, but they want, they just want to know that there is some sort of grounding in, in being able to push back, at least in their own heart, at least in their own consciousness, you know, and not just full-fledged accepting these theories because they are put out there and because they're proposed. And the thing is that a lot of people who spread this kind of thing, um, they, they do do very deep dives and very deep study into their, you know, YouTube wormholes or, or yeah. whatever, these, these books that are, are being uh, self-published on the topic. And they can, as I said, I think I said earlier, it's, they can kind of overload you with information. I've noticed that they tend to be um, very, very deeply invested in pushing this, this particular narrative. And because they inundate you with so much information, they know that you cannot um, legitimately present a counter argument unless you yeah. are a Bible scholar. And unless you have two hours to sit down and debate this with them, which most people do not have the time, energy, inclination yeah. uh, to study that deeply about it. They just, they just want to know whether or not they should invest in it at all. That's a, that's a fallacy known as the Gish Gallup. Okay. Where you just throw as much, <laughs> as many claims as you can, irrespective of their value, because you know that they're not going to be able to go one by one through them mm -hmm. and show you you're wrong. And even if you throw, if they throw 10 claims out and you prove nine are completely unfounded, but there's some legitimacy to one, that's all they need right. to latch on to. Because right. now they can then zoom in on that one claim. And um, so it's... Yeah, that's uh, that's a very famous fallacy. And, okay. on, and on social media, it's even more common because, you know, if you only have on TikTok, you have 10 minutes max. Mm -hmm. And so somebody can make a 10 minute video throwing out 100 claims. And what what am I going to do? Make a thousand videos, right. each one taking 10 minutes to go over one of the claims that they made. That's that's not going to happen. And so mm -hmm. creates the illusion that the argument is stronger than it really is. Yeah. Well, I think I've, I've noticed generally in, in, you know, my work online uh, that people tend to default to information that they, that they want to believe and that's for better or for worse. They tend yeah. to be drawn to information that affirms their already deeply held beliefs. And that's not to say that I don't think that it's possible to sway or to convince someone you know by with with factual information which is what we're attempting to do today um but i think when people settle into theories like this it's because there is something already there that as you made this point earlier that that really wants or needs this the story they need it they need it to be true mm -hmm. on some level and so I think it, the most difficult for me, the, the most difficult thing for me in certain cases is to just back off and say, you know what, if people want or choose to believe that the earth is flat or that I'm, I'm about to do a, an, an entire uh, video, which might end up being a series on uh, atrocity denialism, which mm -hmm. is particularly harmful. I mean, this kind of is a tangential uh, topic kind of related to that because you know, the, the, the Holocaust itself is you, you can get into some of that, that denialism. Um, when, once you start to, to Peter down this road of, um, denying someone's history or their ethnic heritage. Um, but again, I have to keep reminding myself that there are people who are seeking for the truth. They're seeking the truth and they, they do not want to buy into, uh, narratives that simply support, uh, a worldview that makes them feel more grounded in a particular social identity, as you said. Um, so the work you're doing is so important, uh, Mr. Dan, Dr. Dan. <laughs> and I, I just, I, I deeply ad admire it. I admire the, the, uh, the skill that it takes to be, to be steadfast in what you do, because you do nothing but encounter um, false theories and, and have to, to dispel them. So it's, it's, it's very important work. 
Well, thank you so much. I appreciate that. And I appreciate your time and, and uh, the opportunity to come here and, uh, and talk with you about this. I think this is uh, very important work that you're doing and, um, uh, and a wonderful opportunity to talk about something that I think many people would like to just kind of leave behind. But I yeah. think there, there are, um, it does need to be addressed. The, the misinformation does need to be confronted. So, so thank you for the opportunity to do that. Yeah, it's 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 very important work. I think that you're doing. So, can you tell us where uh, where we can find you online? Yeah, absolutely. I uh, I go by at McClellan across all my social media accounts. Now, my last name is spelled M C C L E L L A N. When I lived in South America, that's not a great, that's not an easy last name for the uh, for Spanish speakers to pronounce that begins with four consonants in a row. So <laughs> I started spelling my last name M A K L E L A N. So I'd say, now, can you say that? And, and they'd say, McClellan. And I'd say, perfect. So um, when I came back to the States, that became a handy username because oh, wow. nobody uses that name. So um, M-A-K-L-E-L-A-N. I'm on Twitter. I'm on um, YouTube. I'm on Threads now. I'm on okay. Blue Sky. Great. I'm on TikTok. I'm all over the place. <laughs> and then I also have a, uh, a podcast called the Data Over Dogma podcast where mm. uh, we release weekly episodes, my co-host. Uh, Dan Beecher is uh, is a good friend and we have a good time basically doing the same things I try to do on TikTok, mm -hmm. uh, democratize access to the scholarly study of the Bible and religion and also combat the spread of misinformation about yeah. the same. So we have a lot of fun there. And then for those who I, I get questions um, more frequently than I would have imagined <laughs> from folks who want to know how they can support my work. Mm -hmm. uh, and I have a Patreon at, at patreon.com forward slash McClellan, my username. Uh, if there are those out there who um, would like to know that. Good. Well, I'm, I'm glad that you've taken time off from all of your academic and scholarly work to do the kind of work that you do because the information the information existing or the information being out there and being available is one thing but having people that are good at communicating that information is essential and and at times has been the missing link or the missing piece to that great information getting out to the people that actually need to hear it that's 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 the essential link and so I am grateful for people like you who have actually, you know, come away from the Bible translations. You, you know, you've done your time, you've done your work there, and you're coming away from the, the study of it to actually talk to people and engage with people around this. And it's like water in the desert. I'm sure you've heard it a million times on your page, but I'll tell you again. It is so needed. It's so necessary for those who grew up in in uh, you know very deeply um, religious homes. We are um, just eternally grateful to you for the work that you're doing. Well, I appreciate the very humbling words, and and I hope I can continue to to live up to that. And and I appreciate the opportunity to uh, to share my my research here and to to boost this message uh, about the need to uh, to see through this information. Yeah. So thank you so Absolutely. much. Absolutely, Dan. Thank you so much. And uh, please go follow Dan on all social media platforms and support his work. Do whatever you can to uh, to lift him up because he's doing very, very necessary work. Thank you, Dan. And I hope that we can have another conversation in the future. I'm, I'm definitely going to bug you in the future. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. We'll, we'll, we'll tackle another big topic. I had to stop myself this time from wanting to talk about everything. So we just <laughs> focused in on the one topic that I'm, I'm getting ready to do a, a bit of a breakdown around. But we're going to have Dan back. But thank you so much for being here, Dan, and uh, looking forward to seeing you again in the near future. Absolutely. Thank you so much for your time. 